Hi, and welcome to In Focus, a series of podcasts hosted by Insights Advisory Solutions. I'm Anthea Towitz, and I have the pleasure today of chatting to Christoph Roth, the joint CEO of, of the Insight Group. Christoph, today we're going to talk about a really interesting topic that I think is front of mind for, for many South Africans, especially those that are members of medical aid schemes, and that is the medical scheme increases for next year. Um, I think it's come at as quite a shock to to some people to see the increases that have that have been announced. And let's unpack why that is and how we got to where we are now and what members of medical schemes can look at doing going into 2024. So I think if we could start by saying, you know, why is medical inflation so high? If you wouldn't mind unpacking that for us. Okay, no thanks. It's a great question. I think we're living in a really, really interesting time just after COVID um, in a tumultuous season of, of contribution increases. And, and, you know, if I say tumultuous, I must add, we are recording this podcast in the morning after the Springboks won France in uh, the quarterfinals of the, of the World Cup. Uh, which is also why, why my voice sounds uh, a little bit more husky than than usual. It's a good time to have a conversation Absolutely. about tumultuous times. Um, but to, to get to your question, um, so CPI historically has always been in the region of um, 5 6 7%, sometimes lower, and sometimes regressively maybe a little bit higher. And healthcare inflation, for as long as we can all remember, has been tracking a little bit higher than that. If we cast our minds back to pre-COVID times, it's not uncommon to see medical scheme contribution increases at eight or nine percent when CPI might be at five or six percent. And so the question is, why? This is actually an international phenomenon: is that um, healthcare inflation tends to go higher than just consumer price inflation? And there, there are a couple of reasons for that. The one is that, you know, over and above the normal CPI increase. So if you're a GP and you charge X for a consultation, then your price for the consultation might increase by only CPI one year to the next. So a GP that charged uh, 300 rands last year would charge 300 rands and maybe 6% over and above that this year. Um, Yet healthcare inflation or the contributions of medical schemes tend to increase by more than that. Um, the first reason for that is is just demographics and the population covered by medical schemes ages over time. And so if you get older, you consume more healthcare. So if I can stick to my GP example, even if the GP's cost per consultation increases with only 6%, um, the frequency at which those those consultations are utilized might increase. So people might go to the doctor more often. Right. And and that also contributes to inflation. Over and above that, we have a technology effect. So um, we should be grateful that technology tends to improve. We have new treatments in every year that we didn't have the year before. There are so many examples to, to think about. Over the past two decades, we saw the introduction of laparoscopic surgery, which is great if you're a patient, but it's more expensive. We've seen the Da Vinci robot in the Pretoria Urology Hospital. We've seen biological treatments for uh, the likes of cancer 
Some of them can literally be described as cures for cancer, but they're extremely expensive. And so it happens if you think about this like an economist that in one particular year, you might be able to treat something that you couldn't treat the year before because a new technology or a new treatment came out. And that is an inflationary impact. Exactly. It actually buys better healthcare. So there's an argument that society can sustain these inflationary rates because of the fact that the benefits of being able to remain productive for longer or, you know, to be, let's take my example, to be cured from cancer has a societal impact that pays off even though um, the, the cost of belonging to a medical scheme might increase um, over time. And there are one or two other reasons as well um, that we can talk about. But in the main, it means demographics are changing, technologies are changing. People might reconsider which medical scheme options they choose to belong to, which also can have an inflationary impact. And so all is said and done, we see that uh, medical scheme increases tend to increase by probably in South Africa 3 or 4% above CPI over the long run. So it shouldn't come as a surprise, therefore, that, you know, when medical schemes are announcing contribution increases, I mean, we've seen recently uh, increases ranging from as low as 6.9%. Um, I think uh, one of the, the schemes, uh, one of the large open schemes announced uh, an increase as low as 69 um, And then others have announced increases as high as almost 16%. So there's a very wide you know, variance between the increases announced by the schemes. And I guess members would be asking, well, why is it that some schemes can come in almost at inflation and yet other schemes um, are having almost double inflationary increases? Has it had anything to do with COVID and, and, and where we've been in the last two to three years and where we now find ourselves? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think the first point to make is that in the short term, if you look at the, like just in, in the immediacy of the increases just announced right now, it might appear that there's a very large range uh, of, of increases. But if you looked at any one of those schemes in the longer run, and you maybe look over a five-year period, over a 10-year period, you will probably find that the contribution increases of, of that scheme would even out if you take like an average over a long term to something like the CBI plus three or the CBI plus four that I mentioned earlier. And um, you, um, I guess I want to make two comments. The first is that our market, it might be um, unique to the South African marketplace, but perhaps also internationally, has this habit of just having this laser focus on contribution increases. Um, I think the financial advisory community, just for... For one reason or another, one medical scheme might be much more expensive than another, but the more expensive one increases by 6% and the, and the, and the less expensive one increases by 9 And people have an, a, a habit of forgetting what you actually pay and just focusing on the increase year after year. Perhaps because you know, consumers understandably want to compare the medical scheme increases to their, to their salary increases or, or to CPI. So there's much more than just a percentage increase, but South African, the South African marketplace has a habit of focusing on this increase. If you look at the media over the past few weeks, now that most medical schemes have launched their 2024 product changes, you'll see most of the media coverage focuses only on the percentage increase with very little attention given to the actual cost of belonging to medical scheme or to the changes in the benefits, etc. In the case of the range that you've just mentioned, we have 
the highest increase uh, mentions uh, launched thus far was uh, a medical scheme who announced a 16% increase. That was MediHelp. Um, but if you look at the history, you would note that MediHelp had um, low increases during COVID and actually had a contribution reduction at some stage during COVID. And we might be able to talk about that a little bit. Um, to some degree, I suspect um, what MediHelp has tried to do is to assist their members during the pandemic by coming in with very low increases and utilizing the scheme's reserves to make the scheme more affordable. But now that we are after that the pandemic is behind us, of course, uh, they have to catch up with the pricing and the inflation that they missed out on during the pandemic. And so medical schemes, MediAlp is not the only one, they're just one example, but medical schemes who adopted that kind of strategy must now in 2023 or 2024, or maybe in 2025, catch up, as it were, with the, the inflationary impact that they lost. So if you zoom in only on this year, it looks like a wide range. But I think if you look over longer term, it's a, it's, it, it, it seems a lot more stable than that. Right. So one has to look at the, at the history um, to, 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 to give full clarity on where we're sitting now. And as you're saying, schemes have adopted probably slightly different approaches. Some have had to play more catch-up than others because they may have given back more during the COVID years to their members. Others have made a big adjustment now, and others might still choose to roll that out in the next two to three years. So are you, are you projecting or, or, or anticipating that increases are likely to remain at CPI plus three, four percent, you know, for the, for the next couple of years? I mean, do you see that as a, as a possible trend? It's uh, in in the long run, I guess that that should hold true. But um, you know, different schemes responded, in particular, to the pandemic in different ways, and that means that different schemes are in different places now. And and maybe we can talk about it a little bit. You know, I have a good friend who likes to say that no good deed shall remain unpunished, and a medical scheme is going with a high increase now. Uh, memories are short, uh, and so sometimes consumers forget that they had the benefit of paying probably less than they should have paid over the past three years. Um, and and as a result, you know, depending on the way a medical scheme positioned itself during COVID, there might be a very different response that's required right now. And and I must say, I've been in this game. Um, I'm, I don't know if I should be proud or, or worried to make the point that I've been doing this for more than twenty years now. But I've never seen you and me both. <laughs> I've never seen such a chaotic season of uh, of contribution increases, and with chaotic, I mean just the range and the unpredictability, um, and and the different ways to respond. And it's a strange artifact of the fact that COVID, against all of our expectations, it turned out that during COVID, most medical schemes. Um, paid out much less claims than we thought they would have. COVID, from a purely financial perspective, COVID was good for the medical scheme industry. Claims disappeared. So much as medical schemes had to pay for COVID-related claims, it turns out that many other claims, like going to the dentist or going for screening or going to the physio, even um, going for a new pair of, of spectacles, so those more if I can use the word, more frivolous kinds of utilization of healthcare, just disappeared. People were probably worried about any proximity to the healthcare system. 
Like, I'd rather not go for my dental checkup because maybe I can get COVID at the dentist. Um, and I think consumers, it, the lockdowns also contributed. But so during COVID, uh, medical schemes ended up with extremely high levels of reserves. And uh, much more. It's sometimes two or three times more than the statutory minimum requirement. The schemes have a lot of capital and had a lot of capital during COVID. Now, I think not everyone appreciates that a medical scheme is a not-for-profit entity. And Just unpack that a little bit for us. What do you mean by a non-for-profit entity? So, so a, a medical scheme, if you think about the law governing a medical scheme, the best example I have is, you know, you can't think about a company listed on the JSE, which is going to declare profits, etc. I mean, there might be service providers to the medical scheme, like managed care providers or administrators or, or financial advisors who do work with the medical scheme who, who might be in it for profit. Um, but the medical scheme itself is much more like a, a family trust, really, where the members belonging to it. So the money in a medical scheme literally belongs to the members. If any medical scheme were to liquidate today, you would take the funds, the balance sheets of that medical scheme and split it between the membership. It can't go anywhere else. The medical scheme can't pay a dividend to its shareholders. And in that sense, it's a not-for-profit entity. And a strange, I guess, perhaps even unforeseen consequence of this not-for-profit nature of medical scheme is that I think if you or the listeners can put themselves in the position of a medical scheme who has extremely high reserves in the middle of COVID, people out there are struggling, they find it difficult to make ends meet, you're sitting on a pile of reserves, and some medical schemes decided, look, um, let's just try to go with very low increases and even decreases in some cases to try and assist our membership. And you can understand why if you put yourself in the feet of this, in the shoes of a trustee. It's like, you know, we have these reserves. We want to assist members. But the consequence, which is not always intuitively accessible, is, is the only way a medical scheme can really give back to its membership is to budget for a deficit, to start making losses. But you pay more in claims than you get in contributions, and by doing that, your members reap the benefits of, of, of your loss-making position. And there are different ways of, of achieving a loss-making position, which we can talk about. But once everything settles down and the, the dust has settled post-COVID, and I think many of those medical schemes now find that they need to correct the pricing you know, after having given back to the members. So, so there's a catch-up that needs to be, you know, schemes have got to play catch-up, really, yeah. haven't they? You need to pull out of your loss-making position, as it were. And for some medical schemes, that might mean a double-digit contribution increase or or some some rather significant downwards adjustments to benefits. Uh, and again, if you, if, if you adopt the perspective of saying these are medical schemes who assisted their members during the pandemic, um, but now that assistance has played out, has been discharged, and you need to get back to a sustainable trajectory. I often use the image of, of an aeroplane. Let's say the aeroplane is flying at a higher than the required altitude. It's like a medical scheme with higher reserves. And now, uh, if during the pandemic the trustees decided, let's go with a very low increase, it's a little bit like taking your, your the pilot reducing you know, the fuel consumed by the engine so the aeroplane starts going into a little bit of a nosedive, just slightly. But you're going to keep on going down 
until you pull out of it. So at some stage, when you reach your desired altitude, you reach re, your desired uh, reserve level, you actually need to put in effort to pull out of the the loss-making tra- trajectory. And, uh, and that comes often in the shape of a higher contribution increase. And so I think some medical really scheme... interesting and I think a useful analogy for our members to, you know, to understand. And, and some schemes adopted different ways of going into a downward trajectory. So to say some medical schemes went down a little bit steeper than others, deliberately so. Um, but of course now when you get to the point where you feel the altitude is now where you want it to be, you have to pull out because you can't keep on diving forever, right? And that's why the aeroplane analogy, I guess, is a good one. Is useful. Kristoff, <laughs> yeah. you mentioned that schemes can take a very different approach to how they price for a loss, depending on the situation they find themselves in and their sort of philosophy in terms of giving back to members. Do you want to unpack that a little bit more for us, please? Yeah, yeah that's that's a great question. Uh, the Different medical schemes adopted different strategies during the pandemic. I think all of them were presented with the same problem. Is one, we have more money, more reserves than we planned to have. Two, this reserves, all of this, these funds belong to the members. And three, we would like to give this back to the members in some way to assist them. Now, some medical schemes adopted the approach of just going with lower contribution increases. We talked about MediUp earlier, but uh, BestMed did the same thing uh, they had, I think, two years, if memory serves me right, of, of increases in the region of 4%. Momentum did a very similar thing of increases in the region of 4%. And some other medical schemes had slightly lower increases, um, but uh, certainly um, slightly lower than CPI plus 3 or CPI plus 4. So virtually no schemes increased by about 9% during the pandemic. If I can put 9% out there as a rough, like very crude benchmark of what CPI should be, what, what healthcare inflation should be. Um, but then there's a different approach, which was followed by a few schemes, in particular by Discovery, which was to delay the contribution increase implementation date um, while keeping the increase probably a little bit closer to what healthcare inflation would have been. And th- throughout the pandemic, um, consumers would have noticed that um, the likes of Discovery and some other medical schemes, some of the restricted schemes as well, opted to say, look, we're going to keep the contribution increase perhaps effectively a little bit higher, um, perhaps in the region of, uh, of 7 or 8%, but we're going to change the date on which we implement it from 1 January to 1 April or 1 June or 1 July, or in some cases as late as October. Now, the, 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 the consequences of these two approaches are different. So administratively, it's quite complex, and I think for participating employer groups in particular, it's administratively cumbersome to have to deal with these increases that happen in the middle of a year. I think we've seen that some large employers felt it wasn't entirely pleasant to need to deal with the administrative burden of that. And for financial advisors, too, they don't have to give that advice to their their employer groups. Of course, the market is accustomed to seeing increases coming through on 1 January, and, and sometimes for a consumer, it's a bit unexpected. You might have forgotten about this, and then on 1 July, you realize, now I'm paying 8 or 9% more for my medical scheme. Um, but but I think the, that's one of the disadvantages of the delayed increase. But one of the benefits of that approach is that the delay is truly a once-off mechanism of giving back to your members. So if I increase in line with inflation, but I delay the implementation of that increase then it means that the members 
have a once-off benefit during the delay, but in the long run, I'm keeping up with healthcare inflation. And perhaps that's what those schemes who went with a delayed increase aimed to achieve. I think all schemes underpriced a little bit by still giving back to members and going below the proverbial CPI plus three or CPI plus four. But the schemes who opted to do so through a delay rather than just an outright lower increase, I think have the benefit that they have less catch-up work to do. Because if you had a a three or four percent increase or even lower than that in 2021 or 2022, the impact of that is, is like forever until you catch up. And that's why we see this this wide variety of increases. None of these are wrong. None of these are, are right necessarily. I think those are different ways of tackling a surprisingly difficult problem. We've started joking about reserve shedding, which is just a really uh, a silly way of saying medical schemes had more reserves than they ever planned to have. And it turns out it's quite hard to give the reserves back to members. Well, speaking of that, I mean, I, I just, I think of um, the Discovery Health approach, of setting up a wealth fund, um, a per-member wealth fund, a once-off, uh, you know, amount that could be spent on different wellness um, initiatives and and interventions. Uh, is that one of those sort of alternative means of giving back? Yeah, I think you know, if I look at it from the sidelines, I think sidelines, I think something like the wealth fund was uh, is an attempt to first to do so through a once-off mechanism. So that you do not, um, you know, pitch my little aeroplane downwards forever, um, and uh, or do not require a pullout after that. So the wealth fund, uh, to my understanding, is a, is like a once in a lifetime benefit that you can utilise. And secondly, of course, uh, it's it's common cause by now that we've seen a lot of preventative healthcare um, dip and and reduce during the pandemic. So. People, I said earlier, people didn't go to the doctor for small, smaller things like maybe a headache or a dental checkup. But uh, unfortunately, I think many consumers also didn't go for cancer screenings to the degree that they did before. And we all know with cancer, um, early detection is everything. So we are worried that we might be sitting on a bit of a latent uh, diagnosis of, of cancers that are going to start coming through. And so many, many medical schemes are trying to encourage members to catch up with the um, the screenings, say, that, that they might have, quote-unquote, missed out on during COVID. And the way Discovery has chosen to do this is, is, I believe, through the Wealth Fund, which is a once-off mechanism, which, in other words, by the same token, uh, might also assist them in reducing reserves to a more palatable level. And I'll, I'll just say... These are very strange words for me to use to talk about reducing reserves to a palatable level. We've never thought we would end up in this kind of world. We're like the last problem I think most medicines ever thought they would have is that the reserves are too high. Yeah. And and in, in reality, that is where we, where we ended up um, because of a whole host of unpredictable factors. Originally, we thought COVID was going to cost schemes an enormous amount of money, and it turned out it did the exact opposite um, for all kinds of reasons. But I mean, that's that's the way that's the way it played out. Interesting. Oh, another question I'd like to ask you because it's been sort of I've been thinking through it as well. Um, we all know that the Council for Medical Schemes issues a pricing circular in about August of every year um, as a directive to medical schemes of what they what they 
expect schemes to do in terms of the pricing for the following year. And it was very interesting to me that uh, the council was advocating for a CPI tariff adjustment, while at the same time acknowledging the fact that medical inflation is on the increase. So, you know, how have schemes responded to, to that in terms of their pricing approach for 2024? Yeah, I think first, um, very important to, to use the right kinds of words. Um, the, when, when the Council of Medical Schemes issues communication like that, it's not a directive as much as it is guidance. The first, okay, a guideline as yeah, opposed the, to a directive. The, the first, I think the first word in the title of Circular 27 of this year is guidance to, uh, to trustees. And that's important because trustees remain ultimately accountable for their decisions. Trustees carry a really heavy burden of responsibility. In fact, uh, according to the, the Medical Schemes Act, trustees are personally liable um, in the in the in the personal capacity, without any limitation, if if a medical schemes management goes wrong, and you're a trustee, you could potentially find out that that you're being sued in your personal capacity. Um, so trustees must think and must act very cautiously, and uh, maybe to put it in quite um, you know graphic terms, is to say that if you're a trustee and your medical scheme ends up not being financially sustainable and the council, the regulator or a liquidator or someone comes after you, it would not be a defense to say, but I followed the guidance from council. You can't say, well, uh, you know, I did everything council. Because council doesn't hold the ultimate accountability there. They are responsible to protect beneficiaries, but ultimately the accountability and responsibility sits with the trustees. So that's an important distinction to make. If we look carefully at Circular 27 of this year, there was a suggestion in there that schemes should look towards CPI-related increases for tariffs. I think there's nothing wrong with that guidance other than pointing out that we know that especially private hospitals are struggling at the moment. You can imagine um, the, the pandemic, perhaps counterintuitively as much as it was great for medical schemes from a financial perspective, it was not for hospitals. Uh, you might ask why. You know, it feels like hospitals would have been um, you know, full to the brim. Yeah. But the reality is that that medical cases like COVID infections, as opposed to surgical cases, is not really. Um, so the guidance in Circular Twenty Seven that suggests that medical schemes should increase tariffs by CPI is, I think, a, a reasonable guidance for a regulator to put out. It's not universally applicable. As as a good example, I think it's common cause today that most of our hospital groups, at least the one that are listed in the JSE, whose financial results are up in, in, in open in the public domain, have been struggling during COVID. Um, and that at the moment, they, they're also facing uh, cost pressures like the cost of diesel. You can imagine if you run a hospital, you, UPS is not, uh, uh, uninterrupted power supply is not an option. Absolutely not. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's common cause that we have a, a shortage of nurses in South Africa, that the wage bill and, and the cost of retaining nurses is a, is a challenge that hospitals face. And of course, uh, you, you would have thought that COVID would have been maybe that that if, 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 if hospitals were full of patients during the COVID pandemic, that um, you know their financial results would reflect that in a positive way, but that's not the case. Um, first, I think many hospitals tried to come to the party to assist during COVID. And second, hospitals, um, really their profit margins would lie normally in surgical cases 
um, like operations being done more than medical cases like COVID. So the CPI tariff increases might not be universally applicable. But I think in in Circular 27, uh, the the Circular proceeds to say that that there are utilization increases that medical schemes must look at and take into account. And those are the ones we talked about at the beginning of today, like aging of a population of new technologies, etc., and um, if you read carefully what the circular says, it actually suggests that skin should limit the increases to CPI plus a reasonable increase for utilization. And and acknowledging that that reasonable increase is not zero, I think the circular actually does reflect the reality that medical schemes must keep up with inflation. Uh, perhaps what the circular neglected to mention is the fact that schemes that historically underpriced should now correct their pricing. I would have, um, I would have preferred to see that kind of guidance in some. Right, because as you say, that's what we're seeing coming through in some of the increases is that corrective action. Correct, and if you if you try to assist your members by um, by structurally underpricing to give reserves back to members, then you need to pull out of that, as we said earlier today. And the circular um, was, um, I guess, silent on that, or uh, you know, it didn't directly address that issue. It's kind of there between the lines if you right. if you read through it carefully. Yeah. Yes. So just just staying, you know, on the theme of of, of regulation, um, I think you would have also read in the press rather, you know, recently, um, and it came as quite a surprise that council is is rather upset um, with certain large medical schemes, open medical funds, for having announced their contribution increases in the last two or three weeks without first getting approval for those contributions from from council. And you mentioned earlier that, um, you know, trustees carry a very, you know, important responsibility and have a, have a fiduciary responsibility to do what's in the best interest of their members. Um, what, is your, what is your take on, on, you know, what lies behind that, that announcement? Because that's what schemes have been doing for the past... <laughs> 15, 20 years is announcing their contribution increases at towards the end of September, early October, um, putting it out there that these are subject to, to council a final approval, but at least doing it so that there is time for members to make informed decisions for next year and for advisors to, you know, to give, to give the advice that is needed for members to make the right option choice. Your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, uh, I think if we didn't have a tumultuous enough season so far, then this was very interesting. I would characterize it as a as a break with tradition that we saw uh, from the regulator. So just for the listeners who are not aware, um, this this was reported on in media, I think as recently as last week. About two weeks ago, many medical schemes who have launched received letters from the regulator um, those letters are now almost in the public domain by virtue of having been reported on, I think, first in the Business Day and then in other other publications. But the letter said, uh, you know, there was relatively strongly worded letters. I've seen most of them um, suggesting that the regulator is uh, upset, to use your word, that the schemes launched before they obtained regulatory approval. Um, I believe that... Compared to the contents of those letters, the council has since softened their stance, at least in my estimation, after the story broke open in the media where the council um, issued a clarifying statement of sorts to say that 
they would be comfortable with schemes launching as long as it is made clear that the product launch announcements are subject to regulatory approval. Which still leaves me puzzled because I've personally seen a few of these launches and the ones that I saw were abundantly clear that Absolutely, these are subject yes. to regulatory approval. So not sure what the whole Ferrari is about, but just in terms of you know trustees' responsibilities and the regulatory responsibilities, this is an old issue. If I can cast the, if I can turn back time twenty years, it was customary back in those days when council, the council of medical schemes was a, was a regulator really in its infancy. Sometimes schemes would receive approval only in October of the next year. <laughs> before, <laughs> so it was common cause back in those days that you would launch, you would have to launch before the approval comes through. A council has done a lot, Council for Medical Schemes has done a lot to streamline the process. And so the same Circular 27 we mentioned earlier suggests to schemes that they should try to submit their product changes for 1 January by the 1st of October. The suggestion is really that by, by submitting everything to a council on 1 October, you give them enough time to sit on it and think about it and digest it and then approve it or not approve it. So um, and the, the circular and the letters written by council later all suggest that approvals typically come towards the end of November. And that's true. I think for the past few years, many medical schemes received approval typically by the end of November, or if there's not approval, then the reasons why it hasn't been approved. But um, last year, I personally dealt with some medical schemes that only got approval late, late in December, perhaps by the 28th of December. Uh, some medical schemes um, that I'm aware of only received approval um, by the beginning of this year, as an example, for the 2023 benefits. Okay, so the difficulty faced by the regulator and by trustees alike is that, on the one hand, you have a regulator who has to approve all benefits before they become valid and can be implemented. On the other hand, and, and I think someone like yourself, who's in the domain of giving financial advice to members and to consumers, understand that these product changes must be announced with enough time so that consumers can apply their minds. Because after absolutely, after your medical scheme announces its product changes, so the premiums will change and the benefits will change, and now there's normally a freedom of choice period where uh, consumers can reconsider, at the very least, the benefit option they belong to, if not the medical scheme that they belong to. And sure, and I mean, that's, that's their one and only option, Right. Yeah, so, so by it's law, it's an annual option change. By law, any medical scheme member is allowed to change to any other option on the 1st of January every year. And some medical schemes would allow more frequent changes or, or, or changes at different times in the year, depending on certain circumstances. But at the very least, 1 January, yeah. you're allowed to change your benefit option, which is an important choice to make. And you need time to think about that, right? So. If, if the council tried to intimate that medical schemes should not launch, as the letters that I've seen certainly suggested that the scheme should not launch uh, before the approval is granted, it would leave consumers in a position where on 30 November, say, uh, the, uh, the benefits are approved, hopefully, and then you have one month, least of which the month of December, in which to digest all of that information and make decisions and deal with your financial advisor if needed, and go through the administrative burden of changing options. So it does strike me as a, as a little bit puzzling. I think the regulator 
is facing multiple constraints. On the one hand, the legislative requirement to approve, but on the other hand, you know, the regulator is mandated in Section 7 of the Medical Schemes Act to protect the interests of, of medical scheme beneficiaries. And I think it's important to ask yourself, um, you know, whether you're a regulator or a member or a trustee, um, you know, how do you balance the interest of beneficiaries yeah. if you need some time to be able to make up your mind as to what the appropriate cover is for you? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I think, you know, having having looked at medical inflation, the, 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 the drivers of medical inflation, inflation the uh, approaches that schemes have taken this year in pricing for 2024, if we look at it from a member's perspective, um, you know, as consumers of private healthcare, we've got contribution increases uh, aligned to medical inflation. We understand that now and why that is. We've got, we can anticipate uh, salary increases, probably in line with CPI. So with members having to now, at this point in time, digest all of this information and decide what is the best option for their needs heading into 2024, uh, what in your view should members be considering when they are looking at their medical scheme and the different options that they have available? Uh, what you know, what should they be, be thinking of? Yeah, I think the first point to make there, Anthea, is that um, these are difficult times. I think, uh, you know, least of which coming out of the COVID pandemic, the impact that lockdowns had on the economy, unemployment. Um, if we look at the, the global um, macroeconomic environment and the geopolitical environment, and also some of our local issues in South Africa, like the devastating impact that something like load shedding had on our economy. So consumers are struggling. Employees are lucky if they get CPI in their salary increases. And as you rightly point out, then you see medical schemes launching with more than CPI or some other medical schemes trying to keep closer to CPI, but um, quite often at the cost of reducing your benefit entitlement, right. which is, uh, I guess, a similar way of, of trying to, to address the issue. So I think we must acknowledge that these are not easy times. The second thing just to point out here, of course, is that uh, I'm not a financial advisor and every individual is unique. And if you want an expert opinion on this in, applicable to your specific circumstances, you have to sit down with your financial advisor, whoever you want to choose as a financial advisor, and think through um, the considerations that apply. Having said that, I, I just want to make a few general comments about how to choose. I think um, most healthy people look at their healthcare cover and get, um, I think, distracted by day-to-day -day benefits, as they are often called, that are not catastrophic in nature. And I More would, discretionary type. I would, I would put in that category, you know, things like, um, over-the-counter medication at a, at a, at a pharmacy. Um, I would think about maybe dentistry or optometry benefits. So I don't want to discount the importance of any of those. Um, they are very important, but I want to make the point that I think any healthy consumer can, in his mind's eye or her mind's eye, see myself going to the dentist next year. It's a benefit that feels more accessible and more tangible and young people um, are apparently afflicted with an optimism bias. <laughs> uh, most healthy people believe that you know it will never happen to me. I'm, 
I'm never going to get cancer. I'm never, never going to get a catastrophic um, medical expense. So, you know, a, a great example of a financial calamity that many young and healthy people don't foresee is, is, is the event of giving birth to a premature baby, which you can just imagine is, is tragic. It's catastrophic. If, 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 if a premature baby ends up in neonatal ICU, the case, the hospital case can easily run into millions of rands. We've seen cases north of five or six or seven million rands. And I think if you're the parent of a premature baby, the last thing you want to struggle with in your mind is where you're going to raise the finances. So what I want to say is I, I just, I guess I want to juxtapose a little bit. On the one hand, people see the benefits of, um, of, of optometry or dentistry, you might reasonably expect yourself to, to get diagnosed with a flu sometime next year. Maybe you're going to end up at your GP for some symptomatic relief, etc. Those benefits feel <laughs> tangible, but if you consider them against the backdrop of the real catastrophes that can and do happen and the ones that you really need protection from, I almost want to characterize it as your wants versus your needs. And I want to suggest... That when consumers think about their choices in consultation with their financial advisors, I want to suggest that, on the one hand, think about the benefits that you want. And of course, next time you get glasses or spectacles, you might want a, a fancy frame, but it's more for cosmetic purposes, right? And yeah. if you contrast that to getting diagnosed with, I don't know, with 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 cancer, or as in my previous example perhaps um, giving birth to to a, a premature baby or any other financial uh, or, or a clinical um, you know catastrophe then you know you bring the considerations into a bit more of a of a starker relief so i think it's important just to make sure that you feel adequately covered against those kinds of catastrophes catastrophes and yeah. and i'll add maybe as a final comment that you know in in my estimation it's it's quite common to hear people talk about medical scheme benefits running out but if you look under the surface of the detail of medical scheme benefits running out, it is normally the day-to-day -day benefits that run out, as so to speak. Medical schemes are obligated to pay for prescribed minimum benefits in full, as you're aware. Yeah. And so even if it's November or December in the year, if you end up in hospital with some kind of catastrophe, it, it will be covered by a medical scheme. And I think that's the important bit to focus on when you decide... Um, you know, which medical scheme and which option to, to select. Great. Thank you, Christoph. That was a, a wonderful discussion. I think you, you shared a lot of insight that uh, our members can relate to and gives a lot of context and um, meaning to, 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 which is, you know, something that is a, a very big issue for, for many of us looking at our options for next year. And I want to thank you for your time. Uh, thank you. And yeah. uh, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you again soon. Cheers.